Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 12, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part nine of our series of presentations on the prophecy of Zechariah. This is subtitled, Prophet of the Revelation. And of course, Zechariah did not prophesy the revelation of Yahshua Christ in the sense of revealing its publication or describing it ahead of time. So in that sense, our subtitle is sort of purposely in error. What Zechariah did, however, was provide a prophecy through which Yahweh God provided many things that would later also be provided to the Apostle John in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So the prophecy of Zechariah supplies many parallels to oracles given in the revelation, and in that manner it acts as a second witness to the word of God found in the revelation. Zechariah Zechariah's prophecy parallels the revelation more closely than any of the other prophets by far. Through 11 chapters of Zechariah, we have illustrated the near visions and the far visions of the prophet, the prophecies which seem to apply to the 70 weeks kingdom, and the prophecies which must by their nature transcend the 70 weeks kingdom, and apply instead to the people of God found in the children of Israel, who had long been scattered abroad. However, the visions share a common purpose, near and far. The very existence of the Seventy Weeks Kingdom was for the preparation of a place for the coming of the Messiah, and it served as the venue for his coming. This made possible his ultimate reconciliation with the children of Israel scattered abroad, which was the objective of his being. As it says in the 114th Psalm, Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion, and thus it has been. So in the last few chapters especially, we see that Zechariah's prophecy has been focused on the woman who was taken off into Chaldea for judgment, which stands for the allegorical Babylon where her house would also be built. And this includes all the tribes of Israel, both of the house of Joseph, or the ten northern tribes, and the house of Judah, the two remaining tribes. Now here in these closing chapters, on the surface it appears as if only Judah falls within the scope of the prophecy, because names such as Joseph and Ephraim are no longer mentioned. But that is not the case. While most of the prophecy in these last three chapters of Zechariah pertains to Judah more specifically, the children of Israel in general still fall within the scope of the references to Jerusalem, and especially where the family of Egypt is mentioned towards the end of chapter 14 in the closing verses of the prophet. So many foolish commentators, foolish 
Chicago Christian Identity Pastors believe that references to the family of Egypt in Zechariah chapter 14 somehow have something to do with non-Israelites. Yet, the references to the family of Egypt are specifically an allegory which describes the Israelites exclusively. The family of Egypt refers not to Egyptians, but to the twelve tribes of Israel who were in captivity in Egypt. So these references again demonstrate that Yahweh is concerned only with the genetic children of Israel throughout all of these prophecies. And like the first eleven chapters of Zechariah, these closing chapters are also a messianic prophecy. So while they can be they can be associated with certain events in the history of the seventy weeks kingdom, they do not really apply to that kingdom at all. Rather, these last three chapters of Zechariah have a fulfillment which has not, for the most part, which has not yet come. And therefore, they must be correlated to similar prophecies of the last days and the great day of the wrath of Yahweh, where his people await the coming vengeance of their God. That we shall see as we present Zechariah chapter 12. And this chapter begins a distinct vision, with a phrase which we last saw at the beginning of chapter 9. So chapters 9, 10, and 11 were all one connected prophecy, where it said, The burden of Yahweh in the land of Hadrach. And the context did not break until we get to the beginning of Zechariah chapter 12. However, before we begin with Zechariah chapter 12, there is one other aspect of Zechariah which we would like to discuss. Because this segment of our presentation is subtitled, The Prophet of the Revelation for Good Reason. Zechariah's prophecy foreshadows many, but certainly not all, of the prophecies found in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. For instance, the struggle with Jesus and Satan where the high priest Joshua stands as a type for Christ, portends the events of the ministry of Christ, and also the struggle which the Christian church would have with the Edomite Jews, the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Judeans and are not, which is found in the messages to the seven churches of the Revelation. Then the olive trees and the candlesticks of Zechariah chapter 4 parallel and also help to explain the prophecy of the two witnesses found in Revelation chapter 11. The woman in the, in the ephah, taken off into judgment in her captivity, describes the children of Israel in the same way as the woman with the twelve stars, taken into the wilderness to be nourished by angels in Revelation chapter 12. And while there may be other similarities between the two books, finally we shall see that these last chapters of Zechariah correlate with the later chapters of the Revelation the gathering of the other races against the camp of the saints, and their ultimate destruction at the hands of the people of Yahweh.
So while many of these events are also described in the other books of the prophets, the plan of Zechariah foreshadows the greater panorama of history, which is prophesied in the revelation of Yahshua Christ much more closely than any of those others. And with this, we shall commence with Zechariah, chapter 12. The burden of the word of Yahweh for Israel, saith Yahweh, who stretches forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. And unfortunately, because of the contents of this first verse, we must first begin with some digressions, some brief remarks in relation to two common heresies that this passage helps us to address. First, and I am forever arguing with these clowns, first where it says that Yahweh stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundations of the earth. This is not a scientific statement concerning the nature of the creation of the universe. Rather, this is a poetic statement comparing the lowly status of man to the wonderful magnificence of God. There are many foolish people who insist that the planet we live on is flat, and even the center of what we call the universe. And they assert that verses such as this one are proofs of their contentions. We consider these people to be foolish, not necessarily because they believe this, but because they continually push this concept on others. And being rather insistent about it, they are offended when we do not accept their claims. Over the past several weeks, and I'm going to write on this separately. Over the past several weeks, I've been called a heretic and worse because I refuse to believe in a flat earth. Let me say this. There is only one test in scripture as to our character which was passed down by Christ and the apostles. That test is outlined by Christ as it is recorded in the Gospel of John in chapters 14 and 15. And it was summarized by John in his second epistle, where he said, I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. That's the test to see if we're Christians. That's the test that Christians should pass if they love Jesus, that they love his commandments. I don't see a commandment that says, thou shalt believe that the earth is flat. The apostles told us nothing about the shape of the planet or what we should believe about the universe around us having any bearing on our brotherhood, keeping the commandments, that has bearing on our brotherhood. The flat earth dispute is therefore a heresy because it causes division, and those who spread it seek to divide the body of Christ.
I will write more about it as I have been writing about it in another venue. I will spare you that here. But verses such as this one here at the beginning of Zechariah chapter 12 do not prove that the earth, or the planet as we know it, is flat. And similar statements found throughout Scripture never prove such a thing. Never. The word earth in Scripture does not ever necessarily refer to the planet as we view it today. The same word is translated land at the beginning of chapter 13 of Zechariah and in a thousand other places in the King James Version. So instead, it refers to the land upon which men dwell, or allegorically to the society itself, as opposed to the heavens as the seat of God, or sometimes merely as a reference to worldly governments. The proof is found throughout Scripture, and right from the beginning, where in Genesis chapter 4, Cain had told Yahweh that thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. Well, God didn't take him off of the planet. And a couple of verses later, he was found in a different land, on a different earth, where he found a wife, built cities, and had children. But he never left the planet. Secondly, we have those who believe that Adamic men have spirits which dwell with God in heaven and are then sent down to the earth to inhabit earthly bodies. That's nuts. Scripture does not support this contention anywhere, nowhere. It is, from what we understand, a belief commonly held amongst the Mormons, but it is certainly not found in the Bible. It was also taught by Wesley Swift. But it is just wrong, and it is actually refuted by Scripture. Here we see Zechariah the prophet attests that Yahweh forms the spirit of man within him. Just as Paul of Tarsus, speaking of the resurrection of the Adamic man, had written in 1 Corinthians that the spirit is sown in corruption, in a natural body, and raised in incorruption in a spiritual body. Paul also informs us that the natural body comes first, and then the spiritual. So we see that the spirit of a man which is from heaven is formed within the natural body of man, which Yahweh God made of earth. The spiritual body is created by the same genetic code by which the natural body is created. But the spiritual body does not precede the natural body. And after those two digressions, we will continue with Zechariah chapter 12, with verse 2. Behold, and we should keep in mind that this verse is, this burden of the word of Yahweh is for Israel, for all of Israel. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now the Septuagint translation is somewhat different. Where Brenton translates the Greek, and it says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem as a trembling doorpost to all the nations round about, and in Judea there shall be a siege against Jerusalem. 
In any event, to imagine any near vision fulfillment of this prophecy related to the 70 weeks kingdom, entire sentences must be isolated from the context of the rest of the chapter. And even then, there are serious discrepancies. In the history of the 70 weeks kingdom, from the time of the Seleucids, the Judeans became aggressors who conquered and converted all of the surrounding tribes to themselves, contrary to anything we are going to read here. When Jerusalem was surrounded and destroyed by the Romans, it did not prevail at all, which is also contrary to the expected outcome of this prophecy. So this prophecy does not pertain to the Jerusalem, which is the city in Palestine during the 70 weeks kingdom. Now, to imagine any fulfillment of this prophecy in the modern city of Jerusalem produces many more discrepancies. Currently, nearly two-thirds of the population of modern Jerusalem are Jews. Here in Zechariah chapter 12, Jerusalem is portrayed as being contrary to Judah. If the Jews were Judah, how can that be? But in truth, Christians should already know that the modern Jews are chiefly Edomites, who are depicted as returning to rebuild the desolate places in Malachi chapter 1. And that is the true nature of modern Jerusalem and the so-called Israeli state. The modern Jews are antichrists, and they are not Israelites at all. Nothing in Zechariah has anything to do with Jews until we get to the very last passage of his prophecy, where he names them correctly. We have frequently explained that Jerusalem in prophecy stands for the power centers and seats of government of the people of Yahweh God, the white Christian nations of modern times, wherever they happen to be. And in many prophecies, that certainly seems to be true. Here, as we shall see, we have a far-vision prophecy of the second coming of Christ and the destruction of all of the non-Israelite nations who are the enemies of the true children of Israel. So we shall assert that for the far-vision, the Jerusalem spoken of here is the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, which is described in the closing chapters of the Revelation and which actually represents the people of the twelve tribes of Israel themselves, which is also called the camp of the saints in Revelation chapter 20. Here in the verses which follow, both Judah and Jerusalem are portrayed as being besieged by all the other nations. This burden is for all of Israel, as it says in the opening verse. So here Judah and Jerusalem must stand for all of Israel. Later, in verse 7 of this chapter, Jerusalem is represented as being set against Judah. And perhaps that represents all of the wars of white nations against one another, which we have witnessed in these last days. On the other hand, that does seem to have a near-vision fulfillment, which we shall that verse does, which we shall elaborate on at that point, and we will commence with verse 3.
And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. As we have stated, denominational Christians see in this the modern city in Palestine, which has been taken over and rebuilt by the Edomite Jews, as it is prophesied in the opening chapter of Malachi. But all the people of the earth are not gathered against modern Jerusalem and Palestine. Rather, most of the governments of the people of the earth are allied with the Jews in Palestine, send them money, trade with them, borrow money from international Jewish bankers who support them, and openly suffer the crimes committed by the Jews against their Arab neighbors. All of the white and supposedly Christian nations have fought in the recent wars in the Middle East, which are presumably in defense of the Jews. The Americans, Russians, Europeans, Chinese, and every other government of note has an allegiance to the Jews. While the Jews shoot missiles at defenseless Palestinians and pretend to be besieged. All of that is a satanic pretense, and none of it fulfills this prophecy in Zechariah. In reality, all of the people of the earth are politically opposed to the right white race at the invitation of the Jew. In this so-called politically correct era, whites, white Christians, are prohibited from asserting native rights native rights in their own countries by their own Jewish-controlled governments. Whites are presently being compelled to accept integration with all of the world's other races, with the openly stated political objective being the destruction of the dominant white and formerly Christian society. The white nations being the actual descendants of those ancient Israelites, we see the fulfillment of these words of the prophet before our eyes this very day. Here the Septuagint translation differs, but nevertheless seems to be fulfilled in much the same manner and even more profoundly, where it says from verse 3, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a trodden stone. It will be walked all over. To all the nations, everyone that tramples on it, think of Black Lives Matter, everyone that tramples on it shall utterly mock at it. Think about those Muslims rioting in the streets of England. And all the nations of the earth shall be gathered together against it. In this modern age, at least in the eyes of the minority races and the Jewish media, white Christians, the so-called minority races, white Christians certainly are mocked at as they slowly become oppressed in their own lands. Paying careful attention to the words of Zechariah here, we should also see a clear correlation to the words of Yahshua Christ in Revelation chapter 20. And we will begin with verse 7. And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, 
and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And when they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, the Jerusalem of Zechariah, the people of God, the white Christian nations. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And as we have explained in the past, the fire come down from heaven is in the form of the children of Israel themselves. So we have another correlating prophecy found in Obadiah from verse 15. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. They will encompass the camp of the saints, but they won't get very far. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so also shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, fire come down out of heaven, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau, those Edomite Jews who have returned to rebuild the desolate places, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them, and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. Well, there won't be any remaining of the house of Esau, but all of those nations that Satan gathers against the camp of the saints, they shall be as though they had not been. So at the present moment, we are actually witnessing the gathering of all the people of the earth against the people of God, described by Zechariah as Jerusalem and in the Revelation as the camp of the saints. Yet we await the day when Jerusalem, which refers to the people of Yahweh themselves, becomes a burdensome stone and ultimately destroys all of those other peoples. Thus, Zechariah continues, In that day, saith Yahweh, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Now, we must take another, di another digression. After the First World War, the British Israel writers sought to glean as many prophecies as they could to justify what they saw as a wonderful English achievement in the defeat of Germany, in the taking of the Ottoman lands, including Palestine, and in the maintenance and expansion of their world empire. Later, Many American Christian identity writers took it for granted that the British Israel imaginings were true when many of them were far from true.
Let me say that a lot of the British Israel writers did us a lot of good, but many of them created a lot of fantasies from the prophets. And this verse is one of them, where even Wesley Swift likened its fulfillment to the Battle of Mons, fought chiefly in Belgian territory by the armies of the English and French against the Germans. However, claims of a supernatural event in the midst of that battle are very likely a British fable in an attempt to turn a resounding defeat into a propaganda victory. By no means does the Battle of Mons fulfill Zechariah 12.4. And even if the supernatural event which occurred at Mons is to be believed, this one verse cannot be lifted out of context and applied to that event. This verse is about the surrounding of the camp of the saints by the other races. This verse is not about the nations of Israel fighting against each other, even though that is a topic in other places in Zechariah. Rather, the event referred to here is where all the people of the earth gathered, be gathered together against Judah and Jerusalem, as it is described in verse 3. And therefore, it is apparent that this verse has not yet been fulfilled in history. Perceiving that the white Christian nations are the Jerusalem of God, we await its fulfillment as those nations are presently being engulfed by all the world's peoples. Horses were the vehicles of war in the ancient world, and the reference need not be taken literally. Today's horses are mechanical, and they see with electronic devices. So the passage may indeed have an allegorical fulfillment awaiting us in the future. Hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. And we proceed with verse 5. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength, and Yahweh of hosts their God. And where it says, in that day, in the beginning of verse 4, it must refer to the day of the wrath of Yahweh, when he defends his people Israel against all the people of the earth who are gathered together against them. So at some point in the future, it is described here that the children of Israel and their rulers and leaders will finally come to appreciate one another. Throughout the chapters of Zechariah, the shepherds of Israel had been condemned by Yahweh for feeding themselves rather than feeding the sheep. It must be recalled that the tribes of Judah and Levi supplied the rulers and leaders of the people, and that theme is repeated even more strongly later in this chapter. When the governors of Judah come to appreciate their own people, their own flocks, then, as it says in Ezekiel chapter 37, Israel and Judah will certainly be one stick in the hand of Yahweh their God. Evidently, as we also see in, Zech in I'm sorry, in Obadiah, that stick will be a burning stick. Even a torch, as Zechariah continues here 
in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 6. And he says, In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Meaning that the real Jerusalem of God right now is not in Jerusalem. This passage certainly seems to correlate with Obadiah, and especially with verse 18, where it says that the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. This also correlates with Micah chapter 4, where it says, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And of course Micah is also speaking about these end days, and about the nations of Israel cast far off, the people of Israel cast far off, who became strong nations. Once more, this verse of Zechariah also correlates with Isaiah chapter 41, where the word of Yahweh says to the same children of Israel, Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, the large nations, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. And then in verse 7, Yahweh also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So it has been that the various portions and nations of the children of Israel have long been fighting with one another. We saw this expressed earlier in Zechariah chapter 11, where the word of Yahweh says of the shepherds of the people, Thus saith Yahweh my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors shall slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them shall say, Blessed be Yahweh, for I am rich, and their shepherds, their own shepherds, shall pity them not. So here in Zechariah chapter 13, we see the reparation of that circumstance. But here once again, we see that the subject of the prophecy cannot be the 70 weeks kingdom. And instead, it must be the children of Israel who had long been scattered abroad, even if the 70 weeks kingdom did indeed contain a good portion of Judah which had turned to Christ. And even in the places where the children of Israel were scattered, it is evident that they had taken kings from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David. Furthermore, while it is apparent that the rulers of Europe are of the house of David, according to the words of the prophets as well as some of the historical evidence, there is another prophecy that the members of the house of David would also have perennial wars with one another. As we read in 2 Samuel, where punishment is pronounced upon David for what he had done to Uriah. 
And it says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. And of course we interpret the word Hittite in that passage to be an adjective. It's an adjective when it's used in relation to Uriah, who was one of David's mighty warriors, as the word Hittite also means fearless. Where Yahweh promises that he shall save the tents of Judah first, we seem to also have a type or a model in the spread of the gospel. Therefore, in this we see a near vision fulfillment of this aspect of Zechariah's prophecy. First, we are not told how the gospel spread to Rome, but it is apparent from Paul's epistle to the Romans that the Christian assemblies in Rome were indeed established at an early time and long before Paul himself had ever visited the city. The Romans, it is evident in history, had descended chiefly from the Trojans, and the Trojans in turn descended from a portion of the tribe of Judah, of the Zara branch of the tribe of Judah, which departed from Egypt rather than accompany Moses in the Exodus. So Yahweh would save the tents of Judah first, the people of Judah who heard him in Judea, and the Romans who also descended from Judah were among the first to receive the gospel. And secondly, when Paul sought to bring the gospel to Asia, meaning the Greek cities of Asia Minor, he was told at first not to go there, but to go to Macedonia instead. Only much later did he go to Asia Minor, to Ephesus and other such cities of the Greeks. And while we do not find an explicit mention of Illyria in the book of Acts, because Luke stayed behind in Philippi, he didn't attend Paul, attend Macedonia with Paul. He didn't go into Macedonia with Paul, except as far as Philippi. So we do not find an explicit mention of Illyria in the book of Acts. But we find out later in Paul's epistle to the Romans that while he was in Macedonia, he also went to Illyria. And like the Romans, the Illyrians descended chiefly from the Trojans. And there were also tribes of the Trojan Dardans in the Troad and in Macedonia. So with the fact that Paul was forbidden to preach in Asia before he went to preach in Macedonia, there is evidence that Judah was to be the first tribe to receive the gospel of Christ. Not only the remnant of Judah in Palestine, but also the people of ancient Judah who had a long been scattered abroad. So we see in verse 8, In that day shall Yahweh defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. This is the day when Yahweh defends Judah and Jerusalem against all the nations of the earth who are gathered against it. And the house of David shall be as 
God as the angel of Yahweh before them. And that day still refers to the time when all the people of the earth be gathered together against Jerusalem, as it says in verse 3, where we have illustrated that Jerusalem represents the camp of the saints, the people of God found in the white nations of Christendom, and where the house of David shall be as God, if, as it is described in Revelation chapter 19, Yahshua Christ leads his people to the battle, whether that's allegorical or literal, is left to be decided. If Yahshua Christ leads his people to the battle, he is the king from the house of David, and he is God. Of course, David was not a large man, and the feeble among the children of Israel would be as David. And David was only a youth when he was able to slay the giant Goliath by the power of Yahweh using only a simple sling and a stone. So we see a promise concerning the state of the children of Israel in the prophecy day of the wrath of Yahweh. And it matters not how large or how strong the enemies may be. Once again, this corresponds to the call in Micah. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I, meaning God, I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And to Isaiah where it says, I, meaning God, will make thee, meaning Israel, a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. As well as to Obadiah, where we see that the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. And therefore we see that all of these prophecies are indeed related. And in verse 9 of this chapter of Zechariah, And it shall come to pass in that day, imagine that, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I want to talk about this off the cuff for a minute. A lot of Christians don't realize this. Yahweh has commanded us to be a separate people. And, as it was in ancient Israel, when we let the strangers among us take advantage of our good will, they become the head and we become the tail. That's a lesson all throughout the earliest books of scripture, especially from Deuteronomy through two kings or two chronicles. And that's what we've done. We let these aliens live among us. We start to see them as people. Don't ask me why. We give them welfare. We give them food stamps, EBT cards. We give them access to interest-free business loans. We give them tax credits. We give them tax breaks for their businesses. We give them all sorts of amenities that they don't deserve, and they become the head, and we became the tail. In the eyes of God, 
these people are not here as immigrants to work for a living, to pitch in and help build our country. In the eyes of God, and in the eyes of anybody with any freaking common sense, these people are parasites succeeding because of our goodwill. And then in two or three generations, they've got your daughters as well. We're not supposed to be kind to these people. These people are sent here to punish us. They've become the head and we're the tail. And how many times do you have to get screwed before you get it? And there are still people in Christian identity who argue these things with me today. They claim to be identity Christians. And they're no better than the Judeo buttards down the, down the street at the little church on the corner whose daughters are off with Negroes and their sons are off with Mexicans and they think everything's fine. A lot of identity Christians are no different than those ass clowns. That's what they are. We're being destroyed. These times are upon us. It's too late in the game to be arguing over whether Pedro's going back to Mexico when the word of God says that Pedro's going to be as if he had not been. And that's a digression maybe I could have not taken this evening. But it really burns me up when people that claim to be identity Christians defend the non-white races who are little butt beasts made to be taken and destroyed. And of course, in correlation with Zechariah chapter 12 verse 9, we must mention Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which also correlates with this prophecy of Zechariah. There it is described, and they're quite long chapters, and we'll only touch on a few points. There it is described that all of the nations of the inhabited earth, which are known to the prophet, basically, would in the later years come into the land against the mountains of Israel, and that they would ascend and come like a storm, and be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. That's how they're described. But in those chapters, it is also promised that every one of them, without exception, shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, them and all their bands, and all the people that are with them and that it would take seven prophetic months just to bury their dead bodies. All of these end-of-days prophecies describe the same terrible and wonderful events, that all of the people of the earth are banded together and engulf the children of Israel, and that in the end, all of them are destroyed where the children of Israel then recognized that only their God can be their king, and they alone were chosen by him to populate the earth. That is the account given in Revelation chapters 18 through 22. The will of Yahweh God shall ultimately be fulfilled as it is written in Isaiah chapter 27. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root, Israel shall blossom in blood and fill the face of the world with fruit. When that happens, there will be no competition from other races 
for the world's resources. Another passage which corresponds, which corresponds with this prophecy of Zechariah is found in Psalm 118. Here we must recall that frequently in the books of the prophets, for instance in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, Ezekiel 37, verse 24, Hosea 3, verse 5, frequently in the books of the prophets, King David is mentioned as a type for Yahshua Christ, and he is explicitly used as a model for the return of the Messiah, for the kingship of Christ. At the second advent, when Christ manifests himself as king and as conqueror. Therefore, this psalm is not only a prophecy for David's time, describing certain things that David was able to do, but also on a much larger scale, it foreshadows the events described in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. So in part, Psalm 118 says from verse 9, It is better to trust in Yahweh than to put confidence in princes. All nations compass me about. Imagine David being a type for Christ. Imagine, imagine Christ saying these words as his people his people engulfed by the other races in the camp of the saints are ultimately given mercy by their God and prevail over all these nations. All nations compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compass me about, yeah, they compass me about, but in the name of Yahweh will I destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but Yahweh helped me. Yahweh is my strength in song and has become my salvation. This, this very short passage of Psalm 118 is the entire theme of the prophets for the great day of the Lord. And Zechariah is no different. So he continues, Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. While the Apostle John cited this very passage in John chapter 19 where he wrote, And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. His intention was, evidently, only to demonstrate that Yahshua Christ was indeed the Messiah that the prophets had described. 
and point us to the fulfillment of this verse in Christ. But that does not mean that this will not happen again at the often promised return of Christ. Here Zechariah describes a great morning in connection with this. And those who slew Christ originally did not mourn his death. Rather, they thought themselves justified in his slaying, while Christians had celebrated his resurrection. And while we know that the Edomite Jews, the Edomite Jews are ultimately responsible for the death of Christ, the people of Judah still share a burden of guilt, as many of them were in agreement with their leaders. Peter himself holds the entire nation responsible. As it is described in Acts chapter 2, where he said, Ye men of Israel, He's not talking to Edomite Jews. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The wicked hands of the Edomite Jews. But the people gave those Edomite Jews license to do that, so they share a burden of the guilt. But here, there seems to be a greater reason for the mourning than the original death of Christ. The Apostle Paul describes in his epistle to the Hebrews, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to, of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh or anew, and put him to an open shame. In this so-called post-Christian era, the leaders and rulers of the people have indeed crucified Christ anew. Turning their backs on him, they pierce him over and over again. And for that, they certainly will mourn when they realize what they have done. And Zechariah continues in verse 11, In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. And of course Christ tells us, as he comes with the clouds in Revelation chapter 1, that every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And that doesn't necessarily only relate to his actual crucifixion, but how we have treated him since we have accepted the gospel. Christians pierce him every day by not 
following his commandments, by turning their backs on him, by not loving one another. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo, or Megadon, same place. The usual assertions which the denominational commentators make concerning this verse may be somewhat correct. Typically, it is said that Hadad Rimon is a place in the valley of Megiddo where the good king Josiah, who was considered to be the last of the few good kings of Judah, was said to have been mortally wounded. Then Josiah was brought to Jerusalem, where he died, and all the remnant of Judah are said to have mourned for him, as it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. Any other interpretation of Hadad Rimon is only conjectural. The words are said to be the names of two Syrian deities, but the word Hadad can be traced back to a Hebrew word which means severe, and Raman basically means a pomegranate, a piece of fruit, right? It was the name of the place in Benjamin where the last survivors of the tribe had taken refuge after the war between Benjamin and the other tribes of Israel, described in Judges chapters 19 through 21. The Septuagint translators in Zechariah understood the phrase to be literal and were evidently working from a slightly different Hebrew text, where Brenton translates the Septuagint Greek in his verse to read, In that day the lamentation in Jerusalem shall be very great, as the mourning for the pomegranate grove cut down in the plain. We shall not attempt to interpret that. We can't imagine that people would mourn when they see how they betrayed Christ as they should mourn for a grove of trees that were cut down in a plain, a grove of pomegranate trees. But, if the Judeo-Christian, the denominational Christian interpretation is true, as it seems to be, that this mourning is likened to the mourning of the remnant of Judah for the good king Josiah, then in that manner, the Josiah, the last good king of Judah, is used as a type for Yahshua Christ, who will be the last king of Israel and Judah for good. If this is not the case, then the mourning and the reference to Hadad Rimon remain obscure. But Josiah certainly died after his battle in the Valley of Megadon. And we see in Revelation chapter 17 that in the days of the pouring of the seventh vial, the enemies of Christ are to be gathered in Armageddon, a word which ostensibly means Mount of Megadon, or Mount of Megiddo in Hebrew. So the two events certainly do seem to be prophetically related. Josiah, mortally wounded in the depths of the valley of Megadon, a word which means place of crowds, seems to represent 
the lowest descent of Judah and Israel. And Christ, victorious at Armageddon, which means mountain of Megadon, seems to represent the ascent of Judah and Israel. Returning to the topic of this great morning, in verse 12, And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. First, there were two prominent men named Nathan in the life of David, one being Nathan the prophet, and the other being his son Nathan, who was born to him in Jerusalem, and who was also reckoned among the worldly ancestors of Christ. This Nathan mentioned here must refer to the son of David, as Shimei, who is mentioned here, was the son of Levi. So we see described among the mourners, the shepherds of the tribes of Israel, which are Judah and Levi. Judah and Levi are the shepherd tribes, the scepter and the priesthood. And certain families distinguished among them. These are the shepherd tribes, the tribes from which the rulers and the leaders of the people were principally derived. And throughout the prophecy of Zechariah, Yahweh had uttered his dissatisfaction with the shepherds of Israel. Yahweh had taken issue with these shepherds throughout the prophecies of Zechariah, and therefore it seems that they are the ones depicted here as being singled out, as being most accountable for the sins of Israel. While this prophecy transcends the history of the Seventy Weeks Kingdom, it is clear that the remnant of the tribes of Judah and Levi in Judea were also those most responsible for the death of the Christ. And perhaps it is also for that reason that they are portrayed as being in mourning here. The Edomite Jews had instigated and engineered the events leading up to the crucifixion, but Judah and Levi, the remnant of them in Palestine, were responsible for the Edomite Jews in the first place when they used force to convert all of the surrounding people to Judaism from 150 years before the crucifixion. Edomite Jews were brought to us by the remnant of Judah and Levi from the time of John Hyrcanus. Here we see the woman portrayed as mourning apart from the men. When the children of Israel assembled from the earliest times, as it is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, for example, it seems that the men, women, and children all came and stood together. However, it is vaguely apparent from the modern traditions of certain Eastern sects that perhaps later on men and women were separated for worship and mourning and similar activities. If that is the case, then this is the only biblical reference that we could find which would seem to support a history for that practice, but it was not so in the earliest times. With this we shall proceed with 
chapter 13 of Zechariah were the same burden of the word of Yahweh for Israel continues. And in chapter 13, verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And here we may also perceive that there are near vision and far vision fulfillments of these words. The purpose of the seventy weeks kingdom was for the piercing of the Messiah and the washing by which sin and uncleanness would be removed from the children of Israel. But even those things would not be fully completed until the second advent of the Christ, when, as it is described in Matthew chapter 13, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But the fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness is also symbolic of Yahshua Christ himself. As he told the woman at the well in Samaria, as it is recorded in John chapter 4, He that believes on me, as the scripture is said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. In a similar manner, we see a promise to all of the mountains of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36, where the word of Yahweh says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all of your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And Paul of Tarsus cited that very verse in relation to Israelites of the dispersion turning to Christ. Therefore Christ said to his disciples in John chapter 15, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Christ is our baptismal fount. He's the only baptismal fount we need. And in verse 2, Zechariah chapter 13, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, And we see that cleansing related to idolatry in Ezekiel as well, as we just cited Ezekiel 36. That I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And if you don't think we have idols with us today... You're blind. We have 10 billion times more idols than the ancient Israelites had. We call them movie stars, sports stars, and a million other things. The word for land here is the same word translated earth at the beginning of chapter chapter 12. So we see it does not necessarily describe the planet as we know it today. At the gathering of the enemies of Yahshua Christ to Armageddon, as it is described in Revelation chapter 17, 
The unclean spirits are depicted as unclean frogs, and there are three. They come out of the mouths of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. So here, they are also associated with idolatry, as they are in Revelation chapter 17. With all certainty, (coughs) excuse me, with all certainty, these chapters of Zechariah correspond to the later chapters of the Revelation, although some of the prophetic language which is employed is slightly different, while the Revelation is a more complete exposition of the will of Yahweh for his people. And in verse 3, And it shall come to pass, that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of Yahweh. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. This might be interpreted as the parents being embarrassed of the word of God or of Christ. We have not interpreted it that way for various reasons. But to the Greeks, there were different uses of the word prophet. In the New Testament, we see all of these employed. First, from a Christian perspective, rather than from the pagan, a prophet is an interpreter of the word of God, and that is fine. Second, a prophet is a revealer of things otherwise unknown, the secret of men's hearts. And we see New Testament prophets of that sort as well, and Paul explains that amongst the Christian assemblies, and his epistles to the Corinthians. But for those who would give oracles foretelling the future, their time is past. As Paul of Tarsus had said in Hebrews chapter 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, or in Greek, the ages, if you will. So the last of that sort of prophet is Joshua Christ himself, and his word is set forth in his revelation. It is proper to repeat the words of Christ regarding what we perceive to be in the future. But it is not proper to prophesy future events, or when they will occur, when Christ himself did not reveal them explicitly. When Babylon finally falls, we shall all know it with certainty. We await his word to be fulfilled. Today the world is full of false prophets and especially men who think they can foretell doom upon the people. Many of them are date-pickers, and the dates come and go without incident. When nothing happens, they merely proclaim a new date and continue to declare themselves as prophets. December 21, 2012 comes to mind, and the followers of such fools continually make excuses for them. Many of them await Nibiru, a figment of the imagination of a certain Edomite Jew. One of them, who claims to be a Christian identity pastor, recently proclaimed that the comet Elenin was Nibiru, and that it 
it would bring horrible destruction. But it came and went, and there was no horrible destruction. So we even had this problem in Christian identity. So they await yet another Nibiru, and they claim that it is just around the proverbial corner. Of course, the denominational Christian sects have many more false prophets than identity Christians may suffer, but it's an embarrassment that such false prophets who predict doom and gloom on December 21st, 2012, or with the comet Elenin, and I'm talking about a certain rabbi in Chicago, it's an embarrassment that identity Christians suffer such a fool. People listen to them because they love to be fascinated by the lies. But here Zechariah proclaims that the end of their fascination is coming. And here we see that these prophets are not prophesying by the word of God because they're going to be ashamed of their vision. So of course their parents should thrust them through if they're false prophets. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he has prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. The rough garment, as the attire of the prophet, is found in the account of John the Baptist, of whom it says in Matthew chapter 3, And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins, camel's hair, for clothing, that would be a rough garment indeed. And his meat was locusts and wild honey. And this is corroborated in Mark chapter 1. And the next verse is actually used not only of what seems to be a repentance on the part of the false prophets, but also of the attitude which all Christians should seek to follow, which was exemplified by Christ as it transitions from the repentance of the false prophets to a prophecy of Christ. But he shall say, those prophets who become ashamed, or who will, will be become ashamed of their visions, which were not true, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say to him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Christians are to bear the wounds of Christ. So this is a prophecy that those who would be true interpreters of the word of God would bear the gospel of Christ because Christians are to bear the wounds of Christ. Paul actually speaks about that in his epistle, in his epistles. Yahshua Christ didn't claim to be a prophet, 
He never directly claimed to be a prophet. He let others do that for him. He Others declared him to be a prophet when they heard the truth of his words. But he never claimed to be a prophet. Yahshua Christ claimed to be the shepherd, the good shepherd. During his earthly ministry, he never claimed to be a prophet, not directly. So he sets an example for those who would aspire to be true prophets, that they should be shepherds instead, caring for the flocks of God. So this is indicative that the true prophets of God would bear the wounds of Christ, picking up their cross and following him by serving their communities. Yahshua Christ, the Good Shepherd, bore the wounds in his hands when he was wounded in the house of his friends. Of course, it may be protested that the Edomite Jews were not his friends, and that is true. The devils could never be the friends of God. But Judea and Jerusalem were not rightfully the house of the Edomite Jews. Rather, the Edomite Jews were infiltrators into the house and the body of the people of God. Yahshua Christ distinguished between those who were opposed to him and his friends. For example, in Luke chapter 12, where it is written that in the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be made known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetop. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. The Hebrew text of Zechariah 12.6 seems to read in part, I was wounded in the house of my beloved ones. And the Greek word for friends in Luke 12.4 may be read in that same manner. Philos in the plural. A friend but also one that you love. In the Septuagint, there is a small difference, where this verse of Zechariah read, it reads in part, I was wounded in my beloved house. Even though the temple in Jerusalem, at the time of Christ, was actually built by the Edomite king Herod, it nevertheless bore the name of Yahweh and was called the house of Yahweh, or the house of the Lord, if you will, by all of the Judeans, by the disciples of Christ, and by Christ himself. While it was not the temple which was ordained by Yahweh, it was still the de facto temple of the people which remained for the purpose of the offering of the Lamb of God. And while verse 7 is another messianic prophecy which was cited in reference to Christ, it also seems to have a near and a far fulfillment. And this is going to get a little esoteric, if you will, if I'm not esoteric enough already.
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith Yahweh of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, and Mark chapter 14, Christ had cited this very verse in reference to himself, where he had told his disciples shortly before his arrest by the Judeans, that all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But as we have already discussed in previous portions of this presentation of Zechariah, even though the children of Israel were offered reconciliation to their God in Christ, they nevertheless had a preordained seven times period of punishment to suffer. So Yahweh himself makes manifest his love for his people by suffering along with them, and voluntarily becomes the smitten shepherd on their behalf. So he expects the sheep to be scattered. This reflects yet another dimension in the reasons underlying the passion of the Christ, as Paul explains in Hebrews chapter 2, where he wrote, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But while that may be the near vision fulfillment of Zechariah 13.7, there also seems to be a far vision fulfillment which is already underway. On the surface, this may be dismissed as conjecture, but it should have a clear historic manifestation to those who are learned in the identity message. Explaining this, I must take it for granted that those who may listen are already familiar with the prophetic interpretations offered elsewhere at Christogenia, but especially in our work on the Revelation. Often, identity Christians insist that the house of David should be ruling over the world today, rather than the Edomite Jews, who are its de facto rulers. And it is also evident that many of the European Houses of royalty have already become Jews by blood since they have been intermarrying with Jewish merchants and usurers for the past several centuries. In chapter 20 of the Revelation of Yahshua Christ, we read the following in part. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, nor his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Then a little further on, we read, And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. But Revelation chapter 20 does not follow the chapters which precede it. Rather, it is a literary 
parallelism, which restates, redescribes in a different way, and coincides with the prophecies found in the preceding chapters. So in verse 7 of this chapter of Zechariah has a far vision fulfillment. The clue to that fulfillment must be in Revelation chapter 17, where it says, For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. This explains how the, the transition was made from those who ruled in Christ to the emergence of Satan from the pit and the rule of the Edomite Jew over world affairs today. So while the children of Israel were promised to always be ruled over by someone of the seed of David, at some point their kingdom is handed over to the beast. This would explain the transition from the rule of Christ on earth to the time when the devil is let out of the pit and is able to deceive all of the nations. For the kingdom to have been handed over to the beast, the true shepherds of the people must have somehow been smitten. And while David has seed on earth, the children of Israel live under a beast administration ruled by Satan, which is an epithet for the Antichrist Jews. We would have to present half of our commentary on the Revelation to prove all of this here. However, it should be clear that this is the time which we see today, when the camp of the saints is indeed surrounded by hordes from every alien nation, and the Edomite Jew rules the world. But there is one place in the prophets which explains the transition from the rule of the house of the house of David to the administration of Satan and that is found in Isaiah chapter 22 there Shebna or Shebna a name which means vigor presides over the administration of Hezekiah king of Judah and Yahweh foretells his end then the word of Yahweh says in relation to Eliakim a name which means God raises. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with my robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him as a nail in a short place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring, and the issue, all the vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups even to all the vessels of flagons. Meaning, using the administration of the house as an allegory, that he would be the administrator of the kingdom, and that it would be assured in his administration. This period, we may see as a type 
For the first restoration described in Revelation chapter 20, where the saints ruled with Christ for a thousand years, until Satan came out of the pit a couple of hundred years ago. But it is not yet permanent, as it forebodes evil where that chapter continues, where it says in the verse which follows, In that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off. For Yahweh has spoken it. So we see a prophecy which says that in that day, a phrase which often signifies the day of the wrath of Yahweh, that the key of the house of David would fall. We may suppose that this is the day when the kingdom was handed over to the beast, and that is the trial which the children of Israel now face. The shepherds are smitten, the sheep are scattered. So only Christ himself can save us from the devil and from the armies of bastards which have the camp of the saints surrounded. Therefore we read in verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah chapter 13, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith Yahweh, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, Yahweh is my God. We often wonder how badly our white race is to suffer in the tribulations of the so-called end times. But in fact, we have for a long time been in the end times, and the Antichrist has ruled over us for well over a hundred years now, and in some places even longer. How many more white Christians must die before they repent and cry out to Yahweh their God is left to be told. We only have hope that a third of them shall survive to see that day. Thank you for listening. We will return next Friday with our conclusion. Chapter 14 of Zechariah. Tomorrow night, The Protocols of Satan, Part 8, which will sort of serve as an introduction to a presentation of the Protocols themselves, which we pray will be given over the next several months. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.